Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. So today, what we're going to do is two things. Uh, I mentioned last week that <clears throat> I didn't begin with my normal introduction, <clears throat> which is to sort of frame the various ways in which Bible studies now are being conducted uh, in a contemporary vein. I'm, I'm talking now outside of any theological or strictly uh, religious perspective, right? I'm not. I'm trying to let's set aside uh, faith-based interpretation. Okay, it's dealing with it more from a scientific, literary approach, uh, based upon information that we have. As as a religious person, I believe the word of God resonates. Okay, and and that's a, a foundational principle in my in my life, in my perspective, in my. But what do you mean by resonates? In other words, I don't want to go into the details. That's too complicated right now. Okay, I don't want to. I don't, I don't want to talk about the theology. But my point is, it's not that I'm a denier. But on the other hand, there's this whole other approach, the more modern, more contemporary approach, which recognizes that if even if you believe that God is the source of powerful ideas that manifest themselves, it doesn't mean that God wrote the whole thing word for word. Fundamentalist faith, Judaism, Christianity, Islam believes that the words that are there are the exact words of God. Right. Either they come from prophet, logical, right, the law itself, whatever. Okay. And I mean, that's a way of believing. Uh, I don't believe that. And I think that the whole approach, I mean, as a conservative Jew, the historical understanding of the evolution and development of the Bible is, is foundational. I'm not orthodox. Okay, so but that means that if you take it seriously, then you want to understand how that operates, and that's what we're going to look at. Okay, I'm not trying to convince you what to believe. I'm just want to expose you to this approach because, in many ways, it solves a lot of the difficulties in reading the Bible. It's a, it's a complex text to read, as we saw last week. There are serious contradictions in important statements, important presentations within the Bible, and it doesn't sound right that God should be presented the way it's pre God is presented, unless you understand it in a historical context. If you understand it historically, then you realize that God was viewed in different ways at different points in the evolution of Judaism and the evolution of the Bible itself. That's what we're going to go more into. So now, what are the tools that people use today in order to read the Bible from a more critical historical perspective? And it's really fascinating because some of these things, uh, some of these things are not brand new. Some of the approaches that people read use to read the Bible today have been around for centuries. It's just a matter of re-emphasizing using them in a broader way in order to explore the meaning of the text. Okay? So, for example, I'll mention some examples along the way. But there are other things that have developed and emerged, I know, I can say, within the last decade. Literally. When you read literature from 10 years ago, you won't find these things. And I'll give you some examples right now. So, for example, soil chemical evaluation. Right? Archaeologists look at the soil in which, out of which things were made, 
They do a chemical analysis. They do the same thing in a piece of pottery, and they can tell you exactly where it came from, and perhaps even the point in time when it was used. Okay? X-rays. Atomic absorption spectrometry. Hmm. Got that one? In other words, they, li- they, they ri- literally look at the atomic elements within it, and you can trace this in the ar- archaeological uh, objects. I don't know how it works. I don't deal with that stuff. But, of course, I'm reading stuff that uses this. It's amazing. They're using mathematical probability. Uh, the fact is you have quick computer access to large quantities of information. And I'm going to guarantee you that in the next number of years, artificial intelligence is going to be used more frequently to do that very thing. As you can say, this is one of the interesting possibilities of using artificial intelligence. You gather information from huge numbers of sources and synthesize it and come up with clarifications, options, ways of understanding it in ways that we didn't know before. I mean, there have been people who have literally got all this in their head. I mean, there are, there are geniuses, people with memories, who can read the Bible, read the literature, and it sits up here, right? And as they interpret things and teach you, you'll see they're going to start making connections over here and over there. Most of us can't do that. And you and I know, I mean, I know, it takes time for me to, to, to do the research that accomplishes that goal of bringing together different perspectives and trying to understand what the particular word, a particular phrase, particular historical moment, whatever it might be. Okay? So that, that's something else again. Um, <clears throat> more information about the, about the, the, the cultures and religions of the ancient Near East and the events in, events in the ancient Near East emerges every day because not only are people, you know, doing archaeology and excavations and evaluations of texts in Israel or dealing with with the Israelite material, they're dealing with material from all of the surrounding areas. And given the fact that we know of movements of populations back and forth through that time, particularly the land of Israel, because the land of Israel was a land bridge between Mesopotamia and Egypt, the two major foci of culture and, you know, and, and wealth and material and ideas and all kinds of things in the ancient Near East. And so, the, you know, the land of Canaan was right in the middle. And we know there are two routes, right? The, 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 uh, the Derech HaMelech, the King's Highway, which ran basically up the Jordan River Rift, right? Straight up from central Egypt to more than the, the oh. northern Egypt. And then uh, the, the Derech Hayam, right? The, the sea route, which was more from the, on the coastal perspective. Okay, so those are major trade routes that uh, in many ways crisscrossed through Israel. All right. So um, Megiddo in the north, Armageddon, Megiddo, major, major center of culture. I mean, it's got like 21 or 22 different strata of archaeology. If you've ever been there, it's unbelievable. Okay. That was a major trade route. It crisscrossed right there. Okay. And it hit other routes along the way. So, I mean, all of that, you can't just ignore the general area in which the land of Israel was situated. And so more information comes from there, clarifies more information from us. Okay? 
And then you have, uh, we've talked carbon dating has been around for a long time, but carbon dating has been improved over the years. Now, archaeology and the text of the Bible, okay? This is this is an area that has really opened up extensively more um, in the, since about since the 1990s. Uh, it was used before, but this book, some of you know it because I've showed it to you before. Okay, can you see it? You read it? Sioni Zevit was a was the the mainstay, the rock of of the Bible Bible factory uh, faculty at the University of Judaism at the American Jewish University. Okay, this is his book. As you can see, it's one of those handy dandy pocket books. It's eight hundred pages long, and what he does is he shows that the that the Bible as a source of information when it's dealing with uh, describing elements of uh, Israelite culture, religious culture, and the critiques of prophets and the book of Kings and so forth, and and certain references here and there in places and so forth. He shows how the Bible, if read closely, and archaeology often reinforce one another. And he says these two areas, it used to be when it's to some degree, it's still this way. If you go to the Hebrew University, here's the archaeology department, here's the Bible department, they never used to talk. So Tzioni came in initially with background solely in biblical literature, but he began to ask some questions and started, and he went on and started to dig on his own. Okay, and it took a while for him to break through to get the folks in the in the Department of Archaeology to listen to him, because he had no credentials with them, right? Okay, now he this was he was here in Los Angeles. They were there in Israel. That alone poured cold water on his stuff, because, my God, you know, a lot of Israeli Bible scholars used to think, oh, those guys over there, they don't know anything, right? And then suddenly he breaks through, and the, I remember he told me one of the big moments for him was he, he finally got the ear of a woman archaeologist, <clears throat> I don't know if it's Hebrew University or Tel Aviv, I don't remember, and he took her to an archaeological site, and which was defined as Israelite. And it was very rudimentary, you know, but they, they from the material that they found, they knew it was a place where Israel worshipped, all right? And, and they figured out this is one of what's called the Bamot, the high places, that the, that the Book of Kings and the Book of Deuteronomy denounced totally because of their concern that it was a center for, for, for some form of illicit worship of God. All right? So he said, you see here, this is, this is, they identified a certain spot, whether it was an altar or whatever it was. And he said, if you walk 20 paces over there and dig, you are going to find an Asherah some remnants of a pole or some wooden object that will that was a a reference to a pagan goddess it was a symbol of paganism and it introduced a new a new divinity into this center not jerusalem but into this center of outside jerusalem worship and so she said okay okay i'll dig and she dug and guess what she found an asherah and that just changed everything, because this archaeologist said, oh, my God, you're right. Maybe we should listen to you. And suddenly, I remember 
teaching a, a um, no, listening to a lecture about this from one of the old archaeologists. I mean, this guy was old, you know, very, very seasoned guy. And all of his conceptions of what's right and what's wrong, who you can talk to, who you can't talk to, you know, were focused on archaeology and to heck with the Bible stuff. So that's 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 a different subject. So we were talking and I said, you know, what do you think of Professor Tsioni Zevit's recent researches? He says, oh, Tsioni, wow, that guy's really bright. He really hit on something there. I mean, his research was able to convert this this old guy into, you know, into thinking about this in, in, a, in a serious way. So this was revolutionary for Okay. And this whole approach again was something that, you know, it seems so logical. But because of how things operate, that's the way it is. And But the other thing is this. There's archaeological, there's uh, the, just the digs, the finds that have popped up in the last number of years. I mean, I'm going, well, this is already, you know, some of this was in the second half of the 20th century. Some of you have heard me speak a lot about Arad, the little temple in the, in the, in Arad, okay, with, with two stones representing two deities. We probably talked about it last week. But the same thing is, if you go, for example, Hirbet Kayafa, the this this new this other this new fortress that was discovered, two thousand six seven, okay, and it has become a very interesting site. There too, they found a, ver- a standing stone, not two, just one, but it was clearly the same kind of shape that you can find elsewhere in the in the central and southern parts of Israel. And clearly, it was some form of worship. In this instance, it was only one, but you had a matzevah, and and that 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 area was built probably that fortress somewhere around a thousand BCE. Okay, and it's associated now. Most scholars will say it's either David or Saul. Okay, because serious fort it held it held five hundred people. All right, and there was a matzevah which the Bible condemns. Okay, so I mean, it's not kosher. That's the point. So, but this is this is archaeology that occurred. Now, this is in the 21st century. So, all of these things uh, have become uh, new tools that archaeologists can use, and and that Bible scholars can use. That people who deal with it from a literary point of view, as we're as we're talking about. But also, the, you can see, though, that there's an intersection that takes place between them that ultimately opens things up and you start to think in new terms. OK, but there's more just but just looking at the text. OK, <clears throat> and forget about the 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 um, the archaeology for a moment. There's also this whole notion uh, of, for example, God having a body. OK, God has a body. Now that sounds like heresy, all right. And but finding God has a body <clears throat> in the context of serious monotheistic, un- indubitably monotheistic statements in the Bible, <clears throat> that's that was revolutionary. <clears throat> My friend Benjamin Summer teaches at the Jewish Theological Seminary, teaches rabbis. Of trains rabbis, but he also teaches Bible for any for graduate level and undergraduate students, and he publishes, and he's well re, well respected. He wrote a body, book called Bodies of God, 
okay? But he defined body in a new way. Not something, when you say body, immediately what pops into our head is a physical thing, right? So he says, no, that's not a body. A body is an entity that fills a certain space at a certain time. That's a body, okay? A body can be a source of energy that is here. Think about the tabernacle for a moment and how, you know, various expressions within the Bible itself view the Mishkan or view the temple. Where was God? In the temple. God's presence. We would say presence, but in effect, it's a body because it's in a specific location in the temple. And it's there at a certain time. Okay, now some sources would say that's where that resided all the time. So God was there all the time. Other sources would say, no, God is moves around. Some would say God can be in the temple and can God also be outside the temple because it's God. All right, but the body is not a, not a physical body. It could be defined as energy. That's how we might do it today. Okay, all right, so that's a concept. And when you start reading things, you realize... Yes, there are certain, there are metaphors that are used for this. There's no question. But the body is referred to with respect to God many times, right? We take, you know, we say it when, when you read the Haggadah, when you read these passages in the, in the Torah, that he took us out, the Yad Chazakah will be Zroanetuya, right? Yad Chazakah means strong hand. Zroanetuya means outstretched arm. Well, it's a metaphor. Yeah, it is. But the fact that somebody in the in the Bible is going to use body like metaphor meant that I'm not that doesn't bother me, because I know that God has a, a presence here, okay. And and the fact is that you can find it says God in 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 Leviticus when God talks about the the punishment that will come to Israel, he's basically he says you're going to go into exile and I'm going to go back up to heaven. I'm not going to be there. You're not because of the because I'm going to heaven. You're gonna you're gonna be kicked out of the land because I'm not going to be there to defend you. You you patch things up, get things back in order, and go. But and I'll come back into the land. Right? And that you read Ezekiel clearly. The whole point is that he want he wants to get God back into the land, and eventually, you know, as Ezekiel writes and other the later prophets write, that, that happens. So the presence comes back in. Okay, but that's biblical thinking. So it means, therefore, that that there is this sense of presence that 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 was real, and so you can use metaphors because people they are. There's another term that is used. You're going to hear me use it a lot: repurposing, right? Where the biblical authors will take pagan terms and pagan, in in certain instances, pagan concepts, and re purpose them, taking them out of the pagan milieu and plugging them into the monotheism of Judaism. Okay, we'll take a look at that. Uh, the psalm that we know, that we sing when we carry the Torah around, right, after Torah reading. Right? Ring a bell. That one, yes. Psalm 29. God's name is mentioned 18 times 
in that one psalm more in one piece of biblical literature than in any other in the Bible. 18. Okay, clearly somebody's sending a message. But if you look at some of the metaphors in there, some of the descriptions of what God does, of what God does, you can see there's a parallel between that and ancient sources, ancient poems that were found there, they predate the Israelite, the appearance of the Israelites by a few centuries. Okay, Akkadian things uh, that were found in, on the on the coast uh, in in Lebanon. All right, so these poems use similar terms, similar concepts to describe, you know, who Baal. Okay, Baal worship. I mean, not Baal worship, but it is a an expression. So what did they do? The poet who wrote that poem took Baal concepts and turned them around and basically, no, 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 no. The pagans got it all wrong. Who is it that has, that does these things? Can cause earthquakes and the earth shakes and can move this and that and the other thing. Read the psalm. You'll see what God does. It's all nature. So who controls that nature? Baal? No. It's Hashem. 18 times. It's God. Hashem, 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 Hashem. Beats you over the head. That's repurposing. We'll talk about that more. But that's another way of understanding how the Bible operates. Okay? All right. Um, the other areas of, of reading the Bible, again, you can see hints of these different kinds. I mean, for example... This notion of, of reading the Bible, just looking at the plain meaning of the text, putting aside traditional interpretations, which I mentioned at the outset. Where do you, it's really interesting, in the Jewish tradition, where do we have, where do we see a clearly expressed effort to read the Bible like that? Does anybody know? Where do we have someone who expressly says, You've got to read the context of the Bible to fully appreciate. Tybal, do you know who that is? Uh, no, I went the wrong direction. I no. was thinking that it was the instruction to when there is a king to keep reading so doesn't exceed the bounds. No, but no, I think that no, 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 no. This is post biblical. Oh, post biblical. Yeah, there's no. I mean, we, there's the no. The Karaites. The Karaites, if you're saying both biblical. Well, okay, good. The cat, that's very good. That's even earlier than what I would. No, it's about to say a little bit earlier, right? And, the Karaites. Yeah. And let me just apologize. I tried to get in, I couldn't, and then I looked at the weekly email, which said three thirty. So sorry that I was no, late. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Anyway, yes, the Karaites are one, but I'm going to put them aside because they're technically not <laughs> traditionally Jewish. I want to think you're, but you're right. The Karaites rejected rabbinic interpretations of the Bible. And they, by the way, were very responsible in the, in the, in the development of the, what we now have as the traditional way of, of, of a written text with the, with the vocalizations, right? The, the Nikudot. Space, the divisions and things like that that pop up into the into the Masoretic text. We know that there were Karaitic contributions to them. 
So that's a good one. Yes. But I'm thinking more with, within the, the framework of traditional <clears throat> Jewish Bible interpretation. Rashi was the first man to really stress, read the plain, read the context, read the place in the Bible, the story where words are being used and let that guide you. Now, he wasn't pure on that because he involves a lot of Midrash in his interpretation. But his successors in France over the course of the 12th century, the Rashbam and Bechorshor, take this to an extreme where they just, well, they're willing to throw out Midrash altogether and simply look at it from the perspective of grammar, which is evolving at that time in Spain, particularly, and it begins to translate over into, into France over the course of the 12th century. So they're looking at the language, they're looking at the context, a very critical way of reading it. And some of the conclusions that they reach are quite out, quite amazing. Okay, this is Rashi Rashbam, was Rashi's grandson. And Bechoshor was a younger contemporary of Rashbam. Okay, Rashbam is sometimes very radical. Okay, and Rashi at one point is radical. I mean, when he's talking about, um, wait, what was it? And there's, I, I can't remember the specific detail. He says the rabbis did not fully understand the meaning of this text. And he comes around with his own interpretation. It's, it's a legal tradition in Shemot. He comes around with his own interpretation that's different from what the rabbi said. That's really revolutionary. It doesn't happen that often. But the man was committed to this principle. Okay? All right, anyhow. So this notion then of reading the plain meaning of the text, let it speak for itself with no preconceived notions, no preconceived ideology. This is something that, that already was emerging in the 12th century. Okay? Now, and, and it, it is also... Uh, it is also um, uh, found in, in Spain. Ibn Ezra does that you know, in the 12th century. Okay, so this is another thing. Now, again, the notion of the, the use of what we call, what we talked about last time, but the documentary hypothesis, right, of, of seeing those four strata. And now other more recent studies in the Bible, you can see this in the work of Friedman and others, where they will note subcategories within these traditions and or other other entities that are and I'm going to refer to one later on today other other types of compilations that the bible actually alludes to sometimes okay you'll read things in the bible where they said as it's written down in the book of such and such what's the book of such and such it's mentioned in the torah but what is it? We're not sure. But clearly, whoever wrote that was aware of a compilation of material. Usually they're like uh, chronicles or listing list, name lists, right? The lists of generations and things like that. But they're mentioned. Okay. So, um, but but the notion that that there are there are literary traditions, discrete literary traditions that developed on their own, often with different ideologies, subtleties in how they understood God, understood the, 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 the traditions of Israel, the history of Israel, and so forth. And we saw that last week with the, with the creation accounts. 
and we're going to see it in a few minutes with the flood. All right, similar, similar things. All right, we talked about repurposing of pagan sources. Um, we even have one very interesting one, just just using concepts. Uh, and just as an example, um, there's a term, El Shaddai, that term, Shaddai. Shaddai probably comes from a Semitic word, Shadu, which means mountains. So it's the god of the mountains. But it has been shown that it can also be seen as a fertility concept, that this use of El Shaddai points to God as a source of human fertility. And the interesting thing is, there are four references in the book of Genesis, and they are all P traditions, the priestly traditions, where either God is talking or, or Isaac is talking to Jacob, okay? God talks to Abraham or Abram. God talks to Jacob, okay? Isaac talks to Jacob. Jacob talks to Joseph. In all of these instances, four times, Genesis 17, 1 to 2 and verse 6, Genesis 28, 3, Genesis 35, 11, Genesis 48, 3 and 4. El Shaddai speaks or is referred to in the context of be fruitful and multiply four times in Genesis. So this this name of God, Shaddai, is associated with fertility. So God's a fertility God. Well, of course, if he controls everything, what's, what's wrong? Okay. But the fact that you have this notion of Shadu, right? And some scholars have suggested, think of the shape of the mountain, think of the shape of a woman's bosom, right? The top, right? That's where you get, you suckle and you get your strength, so to speak. So, it, that's, but that's really strange. You want to talk about a, you know, an outstretched arm. But here, possibly you're talking about a physical element on a woman. So these kinds of thinking are just, you know, you think they're outlandish, but they're being used. Okay, one more. Atai, we'll go ahead. So is this time for a short report on my homework? from? Oh, last no, time? not now. It's okay. Well, <laughs> I, it was the it. breast. The breast got me to phallus. That's why. Yeah, right. No, I, I looked on some stuff myself afterwards, and I, you know, it was, there are some references to it, but they were not very clear. So I'm, don't worry. We were talking about the snake as a phallic symbol, okay? And, you know, yeah, it, it's not clear. It's not clear. And the only interesting thing by that, I don't think we mentioned it, when you read about the snake in the Torah, right, and they take from the tree, once they take from the tree, they become aware of their gender. Before that, they were not aware of it. After that, they are. And then they learn how to how to have babies. Remember when Adam was in the second account, not the first account, first account, Genesis 1, God tells the man and the woman immediately, be fruitful and multiply. All right, so there's up front. Second account, when he creates the human, sex isn't in the picture. And when he creates the woman, sex isn't in the picture. 
It's only afterwards that this notion of reproduction emerges when they become aware of their gender, cover things up. Okay, and they, they become aware of themselves after they eat from the apple. And who was it that induced that eating of the apple? The snake. So that's a sort of oblique association. All right. Now, I don't want to say, by the way, in terms of a, using as a tool to understand the Bible today, you shouldn't totally reject the traditional sources. Because they, one thing, I had a, a teacher at the seminary, a Bible teacher, who said Rashi and the medieval commentators, and even the rabbis in the Midrash, they knew the questions to ask when reading the Bible. I'm quoting. They knew the questions to ask to better understand the text. Sometimes they didn't come up with the right answer. That was his response. Because they didn't have, their perspective was different. But they read the text very well. It's very interesting. There are Christian Bible scholars. I mean, going back centuries, medieval, and even late antiquity, who appreciated the Jews' understanding of the Hebrew in the Bible. Because they realized that the Jewish Bible scholars were immersed in that Hebraic culture. And they could hear things and understand things that someone who wasn't that deeply immersed would. And they studied with them. That, that was, we read, we, you can read about this in the, in the sec, Bible scholar, Christian scholars from the third and fourth centuries. And it revives itself again in the 12th and 13th centuries in Europe, in England and in France, where you literally have churchmen studying. There's a, there's a, there are references of churchmen who studied, they mentioned Rabbi Samuel, and that's probably the Rashbam, Shmuel, who was Rashi's grandson, middle of the 12th century. Okay, and mention him by name. And you can even find interlinear biblical texts, handwritten, interlinear biblical texts with Hebrew line and interlinear Latin. And it's the and it's the, the writing uh, of the 12th, 13th centuries. And there are churchmen, most, most likely monks, who wrote these things because they felt that the Hebrew could unlock meaning that they didn't understand before. So anyway, this, it was, it's unbelievable when you, when you think about um, what, what, what was done. All right. Um, there's a question... AJ, do you want to ask, ask your question? I Can you read it? Go ahead. I was just you, you were talking about what Adam and Eve were aware of, and I was wondering whether they were aware of their individuality. I can't answer that. Um, well, it, I, after I they after they ate, didn't they notice that they were naked and different and cover themselves yeah, up? Yeah, they did. Right. That that's the whole point. They did that. I guess it defines what you mean by individual. How how deep but did they understand that? We don't. Know. Prior to that moment, and we're talking metaphorically here. Um, but prior to that, is there a is there any indication in any of the texts? that they were 
unaware of their own that they were separate individuals that in fact that that they and everything else in the garden were not all sort of one were were they well let me say this i i would think that if you look at the story of of adam of eve and the snake to get back to that and adam it's clear that they are that, that they are different people doing different things now it 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 it, it would seem to me that um that that's the most i can say uh, yes there's uh suzanne it doesn't isn't it implied in in the statement of god um it's not good for man to be alone suggests that that each was aware that he was an individual and that another individual person or animal yeah but you know, was, was available for uh, as a companion yes that's a good point because but that, yes. but then that comes back to i mean it's really uh, reflected in the greek in plato um the idea a pre-existing idea of a separation of a unified entity into two halves um that's not an original uh Canaanite well, concept right well remember the biblical account precedes pre- predates him he so, predates plato yes but he's citing something coming from who knows how how yeah, old that well, tradition I, was. I, However, can't, I can't i can't address that because it's hard for us to know where the connections were that far back. Yeah. If we see language, we can know that. But beyond that, it's hard to know. No, but I think Suzanne's, Suzanne's point is, in, is interesting because clearly Adam felt alone and was happy when Eve, when the woman was created. And he says, Zotapam, this time, this is the time. You got it right. Thank you. I'm no longer alone. So that in and of itself says there's another creature here, different from I, from me. How what that meant we don't know, but clearly, uh, I think she was aware of dif- he was aware of differentiation. But Brother, that interpretation would imply that he wasn't aware that she was came from his side. Or oh. it doesn't matter. It's still different. It's another person. All right, Bert. I'm just going to say the other creation story, God creates man and woman, right? Clearly two different things, not another earthling. Yeah. And then separated into two sexes. But it says, and it says, though, he uses verbal, plural verbs when he talks with them. He says, you. Be fruitful, multiply, reproduce, right? So the whole context there is a an assumed differentiation. He doesn't go through the mechanics of how you do that, you know. You know, so we can't say much about what they did or didn't really know. But clearly, they were assumed by God to be of a level of intelligence and awareness. So that God could tell him to rule, because clearly, and he says, you know, you're in charge. So therefore, there's a difference between them and the other creatures. 
So that kind of differentiation is assumed. That's why the, the first the first one is a, is more sophisticated in that regard. The second the, the second uh, creation account is much more ancient. It, it, it's you know it's much more uh, material material. We talked about that last week. Okay, all right. So, but the point I wanted to make was though, you can often find in the traditional sources questions and even discussions that can open the door to questions and discussions from a contemporary basis. So we shouldn't ignore them totally. Okay, so now <clears throat> I want to show you a different way in which these the this is this is a clear instance of a very detailed uh operation on the part of um the well the the guy we're going to call the redactor okay and that's the flood account because the flood account is filled with seemingly unnecessary repetitions with again contradictions that we often sort of fluff over, ignore, and with different perspectives and different details that are very surprising. But if you use the criteria of of uh, modern text criticism, you can pull them apart. But then we have to, once they're, well, we're going to, so we're going to do that now. And I want to sort of walk you quickly through the account and, and the, the the flood stories, so open up your 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 Chumash or your Tanakh to chapter six, all right, and we're going to begin by looking at <clears throat> the beginning of the chapter because it sort of sets the groundwork for the for the flood. All right, so read over chapter six, verses one through four. Okay, so this weird event, right? B'nei Elohim. Um, what does it sound like it means? B'nei, banim, somebody translate. What's a bane in Hebrew? A son? A son, right. S-O-N, not S-U-N, right. A ben, right? B'nei. My son. Okay. So what's a ben Elohim? B'nai Elohim? B'nai is sons of Hashem. Sons of God. But doesn't yeah. say Hashem, hold it. Barbara, wait. Doesn't say Adonai. Doesn't say B'nai Adonai. It says B'nai Elohim. Well, the sons of our lords. Of our, our not lords. Sons of God, of the gods. Okay. You could read it that way. The sons of the gods. So is that saying that there are other deities? Yeah, it could be. It's very confusing. Now, B'nai Elohim can also mean a group of people who are a, so, a group of entities who are associated with the God. It can mean a group, right? But they, you have to remember that the word Elohim is not ever used in a singular. It's it's always Elohim, which is plural. And so that... Okay, but it does... So therefore... No no, but there's no, there, yeah, but here it's plural because it's B'nai, right? The plural right. Is that's sons. That's sons of that's the right. God. That's, that's, that's God. God. That is who is acting. The actors here 
are the B'nai. So that's plural. Right. All right. So, but the, but the point is, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Saul, it says about King Saul before he becomes king, that he was part of B'nai Anaviyim, the sons of the prophets. So what, there was a league of the children of prophets who got together and formed their own little league. It doesn't mean that. B'nai means they are the people who are part of a group. So B'nai Elohim could mean the group of gods, or it could mean a group of divine and divine beings of some amorphous kind. We don't know. Okay. The problem is, what did they do? They, they act like people. They, but they what? They start acting like people if they're the ones who become the Nephilim with sex. Right. So they, they are, they are, they have sex with, with humans. That's what it says. Right. And they, they chose for themselves women. Nashim. Right. That's women. So you've got heavenly creatures cohabiting with earthly creatures. And God gets very angry. He says, there, there, he says I, I, I'm not going to tolerate this, verse 3. They're, they're, they're flesh, right? These, are, these, these humans are flesh. It says who? But he's saying the humans are flesh. Okay, so therefore I'm going to reduce their longevity. They're only going to live till 120 years. Now, when they ate from the fruit, that that made them mortal, right? Right. That was the punishment, because they, they couldn't be in the garden. They couldn't eat the fruit. Therefore, they couldn't live forever. But now, and we know from the generations that were noted, they lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, God says 120, and that's it. Didn't happen all at once. Who's the first person in the Bible to live 120 years? The Moses. Enoch. Moses. Enoch. Moses. Oh, Moses. only two 120 or past 120? 120 exactly. Oh. Moses. Okay. Yeah. Right? Um, so, I mean, Moses' sister Miriam lived to be 127. Right? Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac lived to be 180. Jacob lived to be 147. I think Joseph lived to be only 110. Okay. And then now you have that says that they're good. It's going to be 120. Don't ask for consistency here. Different. But the point is the common denominator is they're now living below 200. And 120, Moses becomes the paradigm. That's why we say today, till 120, Moses is our exemplar. Okay. But that's seen as some form of punishment. And as a result, Nephilim appeared in them. And there, there's a, it, it, it could be very well, as the Bible said, that these were the children of these marriages. It's not clear. And they had, and these are the great, you know, men of great renowned heroes. So they're not so bad. They didn't, they, they didn't do a bad thing. But the problem with God, what seemingly got God angry was that these have, these heavenly, the heavenly whatever they were, had sex with, with, with flesh and they crossed the line. They didn't, you know, they didn't get permission from the boss. 
And that's a no-no. Can't do that. Okay. So, all right, Bert. Well, they they didn't get created anywhere in the story. They didn't what? Where did they come? They didn't get where did they come from? These sons of God. Oh, I I don't know. They just kind of existed. Well, no, it says the human beings were populated. Presumably, Bnei Elohim are divine. They, okay. They 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 live where divine entities, you know, where divine entities are found. That's part of the divine sphere. Yeah, which is a different realm. I mean, the truth is, if you want to be consistent about this, the notion of that would be in the in the biblical mind. My goodness, why is my thing jumping back and forth? This is crazy. Something's wrong. All right. Anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, they they lived up there, and the heaven, their heaven, was not the Shemayim. This is the Shemayim Shemi Allah Shemayim. They lived in a realm beyond the firmament, beyond the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's where God and his crew were found. So they could be angels, right? It could be divine beings being an angel, all right? It's not. It's not clear. Obviously, at the time when it was written, somebody understood it. But clearly, a line was crossed. And the point what this is doing here is, and this is Adonai, Adonai is speaking here. Okay, Adonai is speaking. And you're going to see in the next passage, Adonai is speaking. And keep that in mind. Okay, our table. But looking closely, there's an important change. Well, I think it's important. In verse 1, the births are only to the men. Daughters were born unto them. Yet once the physical process of having children with the Nephilim, the daughters are the ones bearing children. There's a, there are different actors involved in the next generation. It put, could be. It could be. But it doesn't say, it, say, it, it says ha'adam. Right, it doesn't say Nephilim. The Nephilim seem to come later. You know, aren't they the aren't they no, the no, progeny of the women and these? No, yeah, but it, it sounds they, like they they were the progeny. But what I'm saying is, in one, mothers are not bearing to men. All it says is daughters were born unto them, which is clearly the men. Yeah, well, that because you normally identify with the father. That's yes, right. but but them when whoever these Nephilim are, I'm just saying there there is more recognition that the physical process of procreation involves really involves women. Yeah, I'm sure. just saying that that made a change to how things are described. So even if it then got forbidden, possibly at right. least in the text, there's more recognition. No, I understand. I think what it's doing. I think your point. If I can just re- reconfigure. What you're suggesting is it's focusing our attention on the women, the banot, because they are the ones now who are going to be the subjects of the um, bad news from these <laughs> divine beasts who, who were out of control. Okay. Now, okay. Moving on. Wait, uh, hold on. Bert, did you have a question? Uh, I did. Yeah, okay, Mark. Uh did did early Christian theologians exploit this uh 
to about a birth, uh, virgin birth? Is, did they make a connection? Um, no, I don't. Th- I don't. I can't answer that fully. Uh-huh. I, they do. They do pick up on some of these things and reinterpret them, but this would not uh, suit them very well uh, because it results in a bad outcome. Right? It doesn't say virgin. That's not what's at play here. Uh-huh. Process of of crossing a line. Oh yes, I I, I oh I no no no. It may be maybe something else, but I'm because I mean. The truth is, Jesus is the result of an activity that crossed that line, right? Because it was the, according to Christian tradition, it was the Holy Spirit from God that impregnated Mary, right? So they Mm -hmm. may not have, I don't know, but I don't see here how they could interpret this in a positive way, given the fact that God got angry. So I don't, I don't, but I'm, I'm a little skeptical about that. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Now, next is the important one. This is the bridge. All right. Look at verses five through eight. So, first of all, please take notice in in verse three, in verse five, in verse six, in verse seven, and in verse eight. What is God called? Adonai. Right. So what might that learn? Now, given what we learned last week, what tradition is here? The the E. J. Not the J. Not the. I know it's not the P. I always forget. No, it's not the P. It's J. J is Yahweh. Remember, think German, guys. German, not English. J is Yah. The Yahwists. The Yahwists. Right. It's the Yahweh. The, 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 we would say the J-source. The J-source is talking here. Elohim is not mentioned. Oops, wait a minute. Yes, it is. B'nai Elohim. Ooh. Now it's confusing, isn't it? No, it's not. That happens to be a name, a given name. It, it's, a, it, it, it's, a, it's a name that the Yahweh would use because it's not talking about God. It's talking about entities other than God. That's why the J guy can use it. It's an accept, but it's it's a brand name, Bnei Elohim. The same way Bnei Anivim is a brand name when it comes to Saul. So it's not a. This is not a conf, conflated text. This is all J. And when we look at it in greater depth in a second, you will see what I'm saying, and why it, it is J. All right, uh, Barbara, quickly. Yes. Yeah, a five. He, uh, the first part of the sentence is, Adonai saw how great was human wickedness on earth. Was the wickedness the Nephilim having sex and making babies with the? We don't know. It it it. Because all of a sudden the earth is so bad that he wants to erase all of humankind. No, but it says Ra Adam, right? The hum, the human. Okay. So <laughs> whether this is it, only this, I I don't know. I don't know, uh, but the fact that that account of the of the of the Bnei Elohim is mentioned before it would lead me to conclude that this is an element that goes into that decision by God. The fact that that could happen, all right. So I mean, if why didn't the why did the 
fathers of these women allow them to have sex with these divine beings. All right, I'm just raising that question right now. Yeah. So I'm saying juxtaposition here. This was edited, or the, let's say the J source was writing this and putting these together, I think, to point to a deterioration of the um, of the loyalty to God that was taking place. And one can reach the, you can say, look, if these divine beings are doing this and, you know, having illicit sex, well, what does it say for human? God gave permission. He let these divine beings who came out of his his court to come down and do it. Ooh, whoopee-doo, we can do it too. Right? And it leads to all kinds of corruption of of the situation, and it gets out of hand. That's the best I can suggest. Okay? All right, but now let's look and see what it says. So that the Rabbah, Ra'at Ha'adam Ba'aret, right, Ki v'chol yetzer machshavot libo rak rak kol hayom. Right, the evil of the human being in the land is great, and all of the products of their thoughts, in, of the thoughts of their heart, right, are evil all the time. Right, they only can conceive of of evil things. So this is what's going on. Right, he made them intelligent beings, but their thoughts are, are are twisted now. They're going the wrong way. Okay, well, this is Jay. Right, and God regretted that He made the human being in the land. Okay, regretted. This is definitely not a P God. This is a J God. Right. The whole idea that. God could re- regret and kind of say, I made a mistake. Ah, again. Bingo. Again. <laughs> Last week we saw two mistakes, right? Right. So here's the third. One could conclude God, at least in this case, seemed to be an underachiever. Yes. How Although with, with help from humans. Right. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So, and, and he's got a, he, he's, he regrets. That's pain inside. It's a very human expression that God should regret by nachem. The word that, by the way, that verb nachem, the very interesting verb. Okay, most people we associate that with comforting in the instance of death. Yes, what do we say when we go away from a grave? Hamakom yinachem etchem. May God comfort you. Okay, that verb can mean to comfort. One second, that verb can mean to comfort. But if you look in a in a in a lexicon, it will tell you the meaning is broader than that. It means to have a change of feeling, a change of disposition. It's a change. So when you say to a person who's grieving deeply, "May God comfort you," it means may God assist you in getting out of the, the the grief that you're feeling. May you have a change in your perspective. So that's what happened here. God changed himself. And he had a feeling. And that resulted in an action that is huge, right? It's huge. So that's Nachem. Yeah, Bert. Am I correct there's no anger here? 
Um, God is kind of saying to God's self, my bad. I mean, it doesn't say God, his nostrils flared and uh, as it does in oh, other yeah, places. But he, it could have, it could have, but it didn't, yeah. Right, right. It didn't, it, it's not an anger reaction. <laughs> I, I think he I think he's beyond that actually. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, because look what happens next. What does it say? Next verse. Adam Asher Barati. I'm gonna wipe out the human and I'm gonna even do it the the animals, all the creatures, because I'm also very disturbed over the fact I regret that I even made them. Wow. Well, what what did the animals have to do with this? Nothing. Nothing. Well, except they're associated with Adam because Adam named them. Okay. As as opposed to the Nephilim, I think in modern parlance, we would say this is blaming the, blaming the victim. Because it's the Nephilim that did the wrong thing, but they're not getting punished. Well, we don't know. I mean, everybody is going to get killed. No, no, no. Everybody's going to get killed. There's Even the Nephilim? Because can't the Nephilim or whoever they are, they can just descend again. They're safe. Yeah, but, you know, it could be Nephilim, that heroes that were... It, nobody survived the flood. I mean, this I understand where you're going with that. The notion that Nephilim somehow were different kinds of creatures who survived. That's not in the Bible. That's Midrash. Okay? It's not in the Bible. And the point here is all life was destroyed. Okay. Yes, you could say, you know, these are the great heroes, but presumably those are the heroes who had been in existence prior to between the time of we don't know how much time passed between the the sex with the uh, uh you know the, the the heavenly creatures having sex with the women. Okay, we don't know. It could have been years, centuries that passed. You know that resulted in simply a change in the day in the in the longevity of the human being, but opened the door for a process in during which time there were heroes, but that process resulted in the further deterioration of the condition of humans, and that's the point well, I think when the animals are mentioned, and I read this as a suggestion some Bible scholar made, or maybe it was one of the traditional commentaries, which is the human, the evil that the humans produced was so great that it literally infected the animals with the notion that it, there may be some sense of there having been some kind of bestiality Humans having sex with animals doesn't say that, right? But what could have what could have infected the animals that they should be destroyed also? Bert, do you have an answer? I was going to say this is kind of repeated. I don't have an answer to that. But are we going to get to verse eleven eventually? Because kind of kind of the the reasoning in verse eleven is a little bit different. Ah, but look what God has called there. Uh, verse 11, uh, Elohim. Aha! And what is God called in the rest of that paragraph? Uh, you mean 11 on? Well, I would say, uh, I would say no, from 9 on. Oh. Now you're, you're going to prove my point here, right? Right. It's all Elohim. Yeah, it's a different aspect of God. He. 
This is our priestly source poking in here. And we're going to look at it. We're going to contrast the J expression of how God got this started with the P tradition of how God this started. And you will see there are some radical differences. Okay, Mark. Um, real quickly, uh, I have a, a thought that there's a lot of genetics embedded in this text. You know, mutations and different revisions for <laughs> human beings. I don't know that they knew about what well, could be. You know what? Well, hold on. You know, I can't deal with that question, with that statement, because I don't uh-huh. know. But remember, remember, mutations, genetics, all the, a lot of, not all, I can't say that either, but the kinds of things that we see in the world today, when they look at human beings and how they operate and how they look and the various, as you say, genetic anomalies that occur where people come, you know, and sadly, you know, people, babies are born that have defects of one kind or another, right? Whatever they might, that might be. I'm sure it was going on back then. And one could interpret this as saying, look, they're producing monsters. Look how uh, if a person goes on 23andMe and does a genetic test, how they could see a minute percentage of Neanderthal genetics, where, right. where there's intermarriage between homo sapiens and, and Neanderthal. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the point is, but they didn't know that then. So, I mean, it could have been in the, in the imagination of, of, the, uh, of the J author that, that things like that came to mind. And that could be the spinoff from the illegitimate process initiated by the B'nai Ha'elohim. It doesn't say that, so we're guessing. But the juxtaposition, all I'm saying is there's got to be some contact, some concept of connectivity between the the account of the uh, the B'nai Ha'elohim with this second part where the, the decision is made to destroy. Well, there certainly are implications you can extrapolate to... Uh... Yes. Killing the test. Yes, exactly. All right. So now, so that's so he says that. But then verse eight pops in, and what does it say? Noah found favor in God's eyes. Okay. He was a mutation. No, <laughs> he was a good. Well, he was a good the, mutation. No, he was the exception that proved the rule. Right. This okay. was the exception. Okay. So now it's laying the groundwork for what will follow, of course. All right. Now, let's look at verses 11 through 16, all right, and see what that says. Read that to yourself, please. So you see, this is a completely different perspective. First of all, the beginning, Eila told Noah, all right, this is, these are the generations of Noah, all right? That um, is an introduction probably put in by a redactor using a source of genealogies. In a sense... That had already been mentioned in chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, was that genealogy. To me, it's weird that they did it a second time. really shows the significance. Yeah, yeah well, no, but that uh, the, uh, that's a good point. But again, if you go over here, 
um, beginning of chapter five, it says, "This after told on Adam, right? Right. Um, right. This is, in a sense, a continuation of chapter five, verse 32, right? Noah was, Noah is the son of Lemeth, and Noah is et cetera, et cetera, right? And now this is the, these are the generations of Noah. So that is the continuation of chapter five, which is one of those extra, it's, it's a source, it's an independent genealogical source. Yeah. That you find popping up from time to time. Okay. It looks, it, I mean, when Friedman publishes this, it prints this in his book, he uses the same color print as he does for P, but he uses italics to differentiate. So the priests were the ones that the assumption is where you see a genealogical list of some kind, it's priests. They were, they were, they were the, they were the accountants, right? They looked at the pintalock. They looked at the, these are the guys who looked at the bugs and the lettuce. I mean, you know, they looked at the details because their life was a life. Think about it. If you're a priest, what is your daily routine? What do you do when you're working? Right. Right. Sacrifice. What do you do? You're in a temple. What do you do? Yeah, it's it's sacrifices and the minutia of having to do it exactly as God commanded. Exactly, you live in a world of minutia, right? The it's got to be this many of this and this many of that and this many of this. So much of this oil, so much of this grain, so much of different things, right? So their perspective becomes that of of minutia and fixed routines. Remember, jump down in history. These, the Tzedukim, the group called Sadducees, right, in the pre-Rabbinic period. We're talking second century BCE. They rejected the, 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 the Pharisaic and, and, and Essene approach of interpreting the text because it meant you could play around with the details. They were very conservative with a small c very, very opposed to change because their life was one of fixed approaches. Okay, it's a generalization I'm making. There were exceptions to be sure, but generally that was it. And so that's why these lists, these genealogical lists are associated with them, as are the numbering of dates. Okay, you're going to find when you start reading the text that there are going to be specific days and months and years for the flood. It's P. Jay doesn't write like that. Jay speaks in broader generalities and is not involved in the details to the degree of P. Yes, Jay, Jay is involved with details, but not like these guys. Okay. All right, Tybal. Um, Two things to comment, but I think in our modern world, those who earn professional distinctions, I mean, barbers here are like doctors, some people I'm sure are lawyers on the call. That's, that's why they are professionals because they're capable of handling the minutiae. I mean, when you say that, I mean, it also seems to me that for us in modern culture, that becomes a, a badge of honor that someone can handle all that 
that's one. And then the second thing is, sorry, again, I missed the beginning. When you say Friedman, is it Richard Elliott Friedman, the book, yes, The Bible yeah, yeah. Revealed? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, they, they look, they were priests. They were respected. And you need to have people like that. I think more of accountants, you know, because they literally have to be, you know, stick to the interpretation of the, not interpretation, just let the numbers speak. Okay. I Lawyers, I think, you know, it depends. It's like the Supreme Court. Do you view the Constitution as something that you, know, you must follow the letter, even though it was written <clears throat> over 200 years ago? <clears throat> or do you say, no, there is an intent that we got to consider here, but that details of, of reality have changed and we have to, you know, adjust, adapt and adjust. That's why but, you have amendments. I mean, but then, oh, just, sorry, but let me finish, please. If you just had the Constitution, slavery would not be removed. But because if they built in the opportunity to make changes one way or another, um, it means you, 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 when you need to, you make changes. Okay. So, I mean, I understand. Yes. A great rabbi. If I may carry your your example further, <clears throat> excuse me. I know some very some of the some of the in just within the conservative movement. I knew two rabbis who are brilliant legal legal scholars who know the legal traditions backwards and forwards, and I would go to them to ask them, you know, to get an opinion on something uh, because of their knowledge. But they're also known as being very conservative and not willing to make changes where other scholars are not willing are willing to go because their perspective focuses more on the exact meaning of the texts rather than on the tendencies within the texts. All right. It's, it's a perspective on things. So we have the same thing. I mean, I, I just I recently wrote a, a paper uh, dealing with my original paper on the matriarchs, okay? And and I wrote it in response to a friend who's one of these people who was very critical of my paper because he didn't believe that I had made the case to justify adding matriarchs into the Amidah, okay? And he raised questions that I had never thought of. And honestly, when I brought it to the law committee, they didn't think of it either, Okay. And so, uh, but it was it was good. I'm glad he did it. Okay, I'm glad he did it, and and he uh, raised issues that I had to address, and I did. And so, and the law committee just approved my paper um, because they felt that those changes were justifiable. All right. So anyhow, um, but. But I, but this is an interesting guy because in certain ways, when it comes to women uh, and their role in Judaism, he has been a, a groundbreaking person in many ways. He's in Israel, but he ordains women rabbis. He has been a big fighting against the whole Agunah thing of, you know, uh, of a woman whose husband has died and, and she's, or, or whose husband uh, won't give her a divorce. Okay, women who are locked in 
to a situation where they can't remarry. He has pushed against that. He has dealt with other women's issues that are very open-minded and modern. On this particular point, he didn't, didn't feel like budging. By the way, I sent him my paper. I'm waiting for his response. Okay. But the point is, um, so, yeah, I mean, I understand your point, and I agree in found, found, foundationally, yes, of course. Absolutely. All right, moving on. Let's go on. What time is it? Oh, I got to stop. Okay. I didn't think we were going to finish this. All right, so your assignment for next week, my dear friends, your assignment is to read through the end of chapter 9. Just read it through just to familiarize yourself. But now I want you to take, now that you've seen already this whole section here that you just read, it's all Elohim. Let that be a guide now for you as you read. See if you can figure out which of the state, which of the descriptions and the details in the coming accounts would you associate with J? And which would you associate with P? Remember, J will use Adonai. P will use Elohim, right? But now think in terms of what's God's response here. What is God right here? What does God see as the problem? Who is at fault? Number one. Number two, what are the details? Uh, the ark, where does it come from? Which source? gives us the details of the ark, okay? Number three, dates. How long did the rain last? Number four, animals that are brought into the ark. How many are brought in, okay? Number five, how long did the rain fall, okay? Number six, totality. How how much time passed? when Noah could actually come out of the ark. Number six, what kind of birds were sent, what kind of bird was sent out to see if the, if some, if the water had receded? Okay. Number seven, what is the aftermath of the flood? What, what is the, what, what unique action between man and women are the, do we see I'm not man and women. Sorry, I, I, my the screen jumped again, and it was sorry. Uh, you don't know what I've been dealing with here. <laughs> this wants to go back to the home screen of Zoom. You know, every 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 so there it just went. How did you do that, guys? I don't know how you do that. Anyway, um, okay. So these kinds of questions you you have interact. You have final post flood activity. Okay, what are, are there any? Can you see any differences in post-flood activity? Okay, so these are the kinds of questions you can play around with in your own. If you want to write some notes down, please do. I'll guide you through this next time. We'll go through the whole thing, and you'll really see it how it plays out. I find this fascinating. To me, the most interesting thing is the degree to which the redactors here, the final editors here, cut and pasted. And they didn't have computers. All right. They're, you'll see. You're going to see a cut and paste job like you never saw before. All right. Final point. Tybo, we ain't got to hang up. Go ahead. Actually, it's a, it's a question. Now that it's up on Safari, when I'm looking at dates, I like to look at Sefer Ha'olam. 
which was the rabbinic accounting. Is that okay to look at rabbinic interpretation to answer these questions, like the time and days and how long lived? You can look, you know, but again, it's Midrash. Because the rabbis, remember all the time when you read Midrash, the rabbis are aware of the contradictions in the Bible. Okay, that's what I said before when I said they asked the right questions, but they could not come to the decision that it's different sources because they believed it was all the, from God. So therefore, they have to find ways of, of, of interpreting around these contradictions and come up with explanations for them. They have to harmonize the texts. A lot of Midrash is harmonizing of texts. But yes, if you want to spend time doing that, it's fine. You'll find all kinds of interesting things. I mean, you know, the Seder Ha I've read the Seder HaOlam. I haven't memorized it by heart, but I've used it because very often rabbinic countings are based upon that. But even there, there are going to be different traditions and within the rabbinic and with these within these interpretations. Okay. So I mean that it it those are they knew that that was not law, so they were it was okay. They could they could play around with it, because you read open up open up Rashi, open up the Rabbas, those midrashim Ratan Chuma. You'll find in in the same paragraph or the the same section with the subparagraphs, the subparagraphs are in, are contradicting each other. You know this is what it meant. No, this is what it meant. No, this is what it's meant. It was okay because it wasn't law. Question became with law, they are much more. They, you know, they, 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 they are, shall we say, more legally responsible. Okay, they don't, they don't accept everything. And, and by the way, I can tell you right now that my, my, my day at the seminary, my, my stay at the seminary, was prolonged by a year because when I was being examined in my admissions process, okay. In order to get on a five-year program, I had to present 25 pages of Talmud. All right, that means back on both front and back, okay, with Rashi. And I had to have it all up here, all right? And so my the person who tested me, who was an old friend of mine, ironically, um, so he starts asking me this, and I answer that, okay. And they says, what else did you present? So I said, I presented Brachot chapter one. And he says, I can't test you. I said, why? It's Talmud. No, it's Agadah, it's it's not Halakha. It's Midrash. It's not law. It doesn't count. So you are only presenting 15 pages, not 25. You're on a six-year program, my friend. That's what happened. Because nobody told me beforehand that I had to present 25 pages of legal stuff and that the legendary stuff, the the the, the Midrash Agadah as opposed to Midrash Halakha didn't count. Nobody told me that. I could have prepared it. Anyway, you know what? In the end, it worked out okay. I was very young. The extra year allowed me to mature. Okay, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. It's all right. <laughs> so the point is, yes, they are much more careful when it comes to halacha. But yeah, if you want to look at that stuff, it's fascinating stuff. I really, you know, from time to time, it's just, it's sort of fun to to, to immerse in those things. 
Look, I mean, that. Read, consider the Haggadah of Pesach. It's Midrash, right? All right, so who's left out of the story? You know, who Moses. is left out of the Haggadah? Moses. 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 How could the rabbis leave Moshe out of the Haggadah? Are they telling the full story? It wasn't the maybe yes, maybe no. Well, maybe because he was descended from Levi, and that's priest. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. No, because it, because they want the the Haggadah is intended specifically to focus on the power of God, not the power of men, of humans. Oh, okay. Only cool. God. This was God's show. Okay? And in a sense, they're not lying. But the fact is that Moses was the person who felt, who, who took the brunt of Pharaoh's anger, right? He had, he was on the front line mm-hmm. and he had to deal with the people and their responses too. Right. And God had a conscience say, don't worry. It'll happen. Take care. Don't worry. Remember that the beginning, they don't, they don't accept his leadership. They don't accept who's God. Who's this God you're representing? You know? So, I mean, he had to do a lot of work anyway. So Midrash is intended to teach lessons. That is to say the legendary Midrash, the Midrash Agada. And very often they, the rabbis make very, very interesting points. Great for sermons. Great for sermons, seriously. Wonderful stuff. Sometimes it's wild, okay? I mean, they invent giant birds that fly, okay? Magical flying human beings who are able to, if God wills it, just pick them up and bring them to Jerusalem. Fly them in, spiritually. I mean, that's, that's Midrash. So, but it's, 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 there's a, there are lessons under there. Okay. All right. So you got your assignment. I will see you next week. Same time, same station. Please try to get in as close to noon as possible so we don't have to run over. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.